The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged his disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. I wanted to begin this new year and this series in the Gospel of Matthew by asking you the most important question that you're going to ask or be asked this year, and it's the question that Jesus asked to us. The question is, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? This is what is happening in this scene as we read Matthew 16. Jesus asked his disciples, lots, there's lots of opinions about me. There's lots of ideas. There's lots of things that people are saying about who I am, why I've come, what my point is, and my mission. Some say Elijah. Some say Jeremiah or John the Baptist, one of the other prophets. And there are so many other ideas, too, today about, about who Jesus is. This is no surprise. It's on the History Channel, and it chronicles the life of this person that we know as as Jesus of Nazareth, and there are opinions about who he was and what he came to do. You, you even go to churches today in America, and there are different opinions about who he is and what he came to do. There are different ideas. Some say that he's a, he's a great teacher, but not the Son of God, not the incarnate Son of God, the eternal Son of God. Some say he's a, he's a prophet of God. He has come to teach us about God, teach us the ways in which to live and how to, how to live a life that is pleasing to God. But he's he did not come to die, for God would not be so cruel to kill his own son, and no one is that bad to deserve such a sacrifice. He didn't come to die for the sins of the world, but he just shows us how to live. But who do you say that I am? That's what Jesus asks. Lots of talk about who I am. Who do you say that I am? It's a deeply personal question, and I want that to rest with you this morning. Who do you say that I am? Such a personal question that Jesus asked his disciples. And in fact, I wouldn't be going too far to say that uh, it is a question of eternal significance. It is a question of eternal destiny. It's a matter of eternal destiny. Jesus even says, consider his words in John 17. He says, and this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus says, this is eternal life. It is a matter of eternal destiny that you would know Jesus and knowing him is a matter of life and death. I don't mean to be cliche in that, but it is a matter of eternal destiny. You don't need to know everything that there is to know about Christianity to be a Christian, but you must know certain things to be a Christian. You must know true things about Jesus, certain things about Jesus to be a Christian. So what about you? Think to yourself, who do you say that Jesus is? Eternal destiny depends on knowing true things about who he is and what he came to do. 
And while you're doing that, while you're thinking about that, and I just want that to, to rest and to simmer, grab a diary and journal about it as we, t as we continue to talk, who do you say that Jesus is? I want you to, we're starting a new series. I want to give some, some good background of what's going on here. I want to take a brief inter intermission as you think about that question. How would you explain that question, who is Jesus? I want to talk about this year and where we're going and this teaching because today we begin a new series that we're going to spend most of the year in, in 2017. So we want, to get, we want to get comfortable in it. We want to get settled here for a while. The Gospel of Matthew was written by an apostle named Matthew. He was a tax collector by trade. And if you know anything about tax collectors in Jesus' time, they were, they were despised. They were, uh, they were actually employed by the Roman government to... to uh, to collect a tax from the Jewish people as a, as a Jewish state that was under the rule of the Roman government. And so instead of sending in these big bad uh, soldiers with knives and swords to, to take money from them, they, they employed one of their own. They employed Jewish people from among their own, their own community. And so they were hated. They were despised. It's the first book of the New Testament. <clears throat> it was written about 400 years after a 400-year silence from God, just like the 400 years that God's people wandered in the desert after their rescue from Egypt, God's people were waiting to hear from God for a period of 400 years. Before Matthew is the book of Malachi, and there's, which is the last book of the Old Testament, and there's a 400-year gap, and people are waiting and wondering. And the book of Malachi ends with this, somewhat of this call of, be patient, God is coming the Lord is coming, and so we wait, and we watch, and there's 400 years that go by for God's people. And then that silence breaks with, with John the Baptist coming on the scene, and we, we actually preached about this the last week of our Advent series. It's one of four accounts of, of the life of Christ. So that's what the Gospels are, if you're unfamiliar with kind of how the Bible is set up. There's four Gospel accounts, or four Gospels, and these are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they, they just give an account of, of the life of Jesus. And so, uh, like the Apostle Paul would write letters, they were called epistles. He would write these books of the Bible were letters to specific churches regarding specific theological issues that he was addressing at the time. But the Gospels are not like that. They're not to a specific church or re related to a specific uh, theological issue that they needed to wrestle with. He's talking about Jesus and answering that question, who is he and why was he here? You might hear me use the word gospel in plural and in singular, like gospels, like I just did, or, or plural, the gospel. Plural, the gospels, is the gospel's accounts, and so there aren't four gospels. There aren't like four different gospels. There's one gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and four different accounts that we have in the scriptures of that. The gospel singular is the message of God. It's the proclamation of God. It's the message, the good news that God desires to tell us that, that, is, that boils down to the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. His life of Jesus. What do we learn? We learn that, that Jesus is God, that he created the world, that he lovingly came into creation as, as a man, which we celebrated last week in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, of Christmas, the birth of Christ. We celebrated that eternal Son of God became a man and took on flesh and became Emmanuel, God with us. That this Jesus lived a, a sinless life, Though he was tempted by sin in every single way that you and I have been tempted. Think about that. He lived our, that he lived the life that we should have lived. And he died the death that you and I deserve to die. He was tempted. He wasn't just carried along by the Holy Spirit in some sort of a trance where he could not, 
could not do any harm. He was tempted by sin, like you and I are tempted. And yet he was faultless and without sin. And even though we justly deserve God's punishment for our sins, as the Gospels tell us, Jesus went to the cross for us, to die for us. And on the cross, Jesus demonstrates this substitution for us. The substitution for sinners. He actually willingly takes on the sins of his enemies, and he substitutes himself in their place. And on the cross, Martin Luther calls this the great exchange. The great exchange is what? Jesus takes our sin and and we take his righteousness. There's an exchange. We both take what we don't deserve. And then Jesus' body was laid in a tomb and where he was buried and laid dead for three days. And on the third day, Jesus rose in victory over death and sin and hell, after which he ate and he drank and he went fishing with his friends and he laughed he spent time with those whom he loved and spent life with. And then he ascended into heaven, where he is ruling and reigning over all of his creation, over all cultures and races and eras of time, and where he prepares a place for those whom he died. And he will one day return again to judge the living and the dead. And those whom trust in Jesus will enjoy eternity in his kingdom forever, the new heaven and the new earth, where sin and sorrow cease, where the promise of revelation comes true, where there will be no more tears and no more sorrow, and everything that has gone bad will be made right. And we will be with him forever. And then those who do not trust in him and do not believe in Jesus will suffer apart from him, in a physical, conscious existence forever in hell. And the reality of that, in the reality of all that, we call the good news. We call the gospel because Jesus himself tells us that he has come to seek and to save the lost. This is the message of the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In some way, they're telling about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and what it all means, and who is Jesus And that there is a a physical and conscious and eternal separation from God in eternal torment that is called hell. But the good news, well, Jesus came to save and to save and to seek out the lost. This might lead us to ask, well, well, how is a person saved? If he came to seek out and to save the lost, well, then how is a person saved? To enjoy this, this, this salvation and forgiveness of sins and relationship with Jesus forever is a to sum it all up, it's from a passage that was read this morning by Drew in Ephesians 2, 8-9. through 9. For it is by grace. We would respond in this way to that question. For it is by grace that you have been saved. Through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. The gospel is for everyone, and for every moment, and for every culture, and every race, and every context. The gospel is for all people. It's the good news of Jesus, and the gospel is meant to have this central place in the life of every believer, to influence their life in every way, that influence their emotions, and influence their relationships, and influence their speech, and their hope in life and in death. It is meant to be this central focus of our life, like the, uh, like the center of a wheel, 
not just an, another ball that we're juggling in our life. You see, we've got our family, and we've got our work, and we've got our health, and we've got our, our, our New Year's goals and resolutions, and, then, and we've got church and Jesus. It's not just another ball to juggle. It is, it is, it is the center of our universe on which everything that all of our hopes and dreams and, and, and aspirations, they all hinge on this. 60% of the book of Matthew uh, is, uh, are, the actual, are the words of Jesus. And if you have a Bible that has like a red letter Bible where the red letters uh, mean that these are the spoken words of Christ, if you look at the Gospel of Matthew, you will see, you will, you'll be flipping a lot and it's just all red. There's seas of red. Matthew wanted, he, he wanted us to, to, to know the words of Jesus. It was of particular importance to Matthew to recall and to, uh, and to maintain and preserve the teachings of Jesus, the words of Christ. 60% of the book is made up of Jesus speaking. He talks a lot. He's not silent. And we're going to spend this year listening to him and what he has to say. He saw it of particular importance to give you and I an eyewitness account of what did Jesus say. Don't take it from me. Take, this is what Jesus said. Matthew saw it. Uh, he wanted this to be known so well. And his message is so clear that we'll come to see over the course of time. What is the message of Matthew? What did he want us to know that Jesus is saying to us? And here it is. Jesus is king, that he is Lord, that he is Savior, and who he is and what he does commands our absolute worship and obedience and allegiance in all of our life. If we read the words of Jesus, we will have no room to dispute this. If we see his teachings, we will say, well, he doesn't make any bones about it. He wants us to know who's in charge. He wants us to know who is directing all of creation. And he wants us to know what he demands of us after listening to what he has to say. He's our hero. He's our sustainer. He is our creator. He alone is worthy then of, of complete attention and obedience. That's what we'll come to see over the course of time working through this book. And so a 30,000-foot uh, view of the book of Matthew would be uh, to know who Jesus is and knowing who he is, when we know who he is, we would give our worship and affection and our obedience and our very life to him. And in believing him, we may have the promised life that he promises to us. This is our hope. So you're still thinking about that question? Let's transition back to the question that Jesus asked. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Because this really is a question of eternal perspective and destiny. Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? And this you is plural. You see, uh, he's asking, who do people say I am? And then he turns to his disciples, the group of close followers that he has. He says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter, uh, who he calls Peter, changes his name to Peter. His name was Simon, uh, son of Jonah, bar Jonah. That's what that means. His dad's name was Jonah. And not that Jonah, but a different Jonah. Um, who do you say that I am? Peter chimes in. He, he says, well, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Lots of opinions out there about who Jesus is. A lot of opinions about also about what it means to be a Christian and what a Christian is, what it means to follow Jesus. Isn't that right? Maybe even more opinions about what it means to be a Christian than, it is, uh, than there are opinions about who Jesus was. And he turns to his disciples. Well, there's lots of opinions about who I am and what it means to follow me. What, what does it mean to follow me? What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to know Jesus? What does it mean to be a disciple? We could even throw all those questions in there this year. 
This is a good confrontation. Good question for us all. It's a good confrontation for us. It's a question that Jesus continues to ask to the church today. Holy Cross, who do you say Jesus is? And will you be faithful to, even difficult at times, to believe what, who Jesus is by what he says and his words and these red letters? Are you going to live your life according to what he says? Will you believe that with your life? Will you give your life to it? There's a lot of imposters out there, a lot of disciples that are imposters. There's a lot of uh, ideas about Christ that are, that are imposters, that are not true, and they're not consistent with what Jesus has said about himself. And so let's look at the real Jesus. Who is the real Jesus? What has he taught us about himself? We already know the answer. It's actually plain here. As Peter says it so obviously, he gets it right. I wonder, as, as Peter says, well, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, and, and Jesus is so excited, and I almost wonder if uh, Peter is thinking, so was that correct? <laughs> was, did I, did I, I didn't get a yes out of you, Jesus. But Jesus is obviously so excited, he's affirming him, and he's saying, I'm going to build my church on you, Peter, and, and the gates of hell won't, won't overthrow it. And God has revealed this to you, and you couldn't come to this on your own. He's saying, you're right. You're right. Probably to his own surprise, I would imagine, as Peter just chimes in, he has a kind of a, a reputation of being a little too quick to speak uh, and foolish at times, but in this, this case, he gets it right. He nails it right on the head. But let's talk about what this means. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. What does this mean? Who is he? Well, it's found in what he is called in some of these names. There's some of these uh, pictures of Jesus, these names in our passage and in the book of Matthew that are important to see. Some of these titles. See, we have a, we have a folder at home um, that, is, that is titled Vital Info. And in that folder, as you might imagine, are really important documents about the identity of our children. Social security numbers and names and, and birth time and birth weight and, and uh, certificates from the Department of Health uh, for, on their, their birth certificates and, and things like that. Feeling a little insecure now, now that you know that there's one place that, that you can take this one binder and destroy our lives. Everything's in there. Passports. And, and we go to this folder, we go to this binder when we need to reveal who they are and their identity. And we, when someone asks for it. So when there's immunizations or when they are enrolling in school or go to a sport, they say, well, show us who they are and give a, you know, present this information, this vital info. And we go to the vital info vault and we bring out this stuff. Well, that's what Matthew is doing. He's saying, I'm going to go to the vault and give you some vital info on who Jesus is so that you may know who he is and know his true identity. And I'm going to give you, the way I'm going to do that is by giving you some titles of what he is called. And what he is called is going to reveal who he is and, and what he has come to do. Matthew's sharing this vital info. He's called simply the Christ. Jesus Christ. Christ is not his last name. You knew that, right? It's a title. It's a title of his identity, of his mission. Christ is the anointed one, the Messiah. Jesus is the one who saves. Jesus is the anointed one of God, the promised one of God, the promised of old, the Old Testament, when God said there's going to be a person that will come whose heel will be bit by the serpent and who will crush the serpent's head and defeat sin and death once and for all, there will be one who will reverse the curse of sin when Adam and Eve fell into sin, when they rebelled against God. There will be one that I promised to you and to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all who would come after them. God says, I am a faithful God, a promise-keeping God. You will be saved. I will rescue you. And his name is Messiah and the Christ. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're Christ. And he says, bingo, 
I'm the one that the world has spoken of. I am the one who alone can save you. The Messiah, the promised one. Another title is this, the son of David. You hear the son of David and Jewish people, their ears will go up and their eyes will open because they know what this means. They're waiting for the son of David. They're looking for a descendant of David because a promise was given to King David that he says, on your throne, King David, someone will come from your family who will be the everlasting king, who will sit on your throne forever and will rule God's people forever. And this, this throne will be an everlasting one. His kingdom will not end and it will rule the world. Okay, so we're looking for a descendant of David. Yes, the son of David. And the angels say, good news of great joy, for unto you this day is born in the city of David, the Christ, the Christ child. The, the, the king, the everlasting king, and Jesus assumes this role. And it's interesting that Jesus assumes this role without any hesitation. He assumes the role as the rightful heir to the eternal kingdom of God. And all of creation, what this means is that he will be king that will rule over all of creation and all of, all of uh, the world. He will be the arbiter of all that exists. And he will sit over it and, and judge it with perfect wisdom and love forever. And Jesus says, that's me. I'm the eternal king of all of creation. Another title is the son of God the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God. Equal in power and equal in honor and dignity of the God the Father, yet distinct in his role and function within creation. The incarnate Son of God, taking on flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. And then the title here that Jesus uses is the Son of Man. And this is Jesus' favorite title for himself. He uses it more than any other title. It is the title, the Son of Man, and probably one that you and I are, are most unfamiliar with, but one that Jesus liked the most, and so we should really understand what it means. It describes his mission. It was borrowed from the prophet Daniel that described that, 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 that someone would come, he would be called the Son of Man that would come, and he alone, in all of creation, he alone is worthy of our absolute worship and allegiance and obedience. From all the nations, not just Christian, uh, Christians and, and, or Jewish people, all the nations, all people, ought to give this Son of Man true worship. And it was a title given to a, a figure that would be king over all creation. And Jesus says, I like that. Call me that. I like that title. The one who would be king over all nations. And the only one who is worthy of absolute worship and obedience. I like that. It has a nice ring to it. You can call me the Son of Man. But Jesus adds something to this picture of the Son of Man. You see, not only will the Son of Man be one in triumph and victory and seated on the throne, uh, demanding and commanding and warranting all worship from all nations, where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, Jesus adds to this picture and says, but this one who is uh, worthy of all this worship will be a suffering servant. The Son of Man uh, will, will be rejected. He will be betrayed. He will be humiliated. He will suffer a, a sinner's death. And yet eventually he will triumph in victory. And so Jesus adds uh, through his words and description of the Son of Man. The Son of Man is not one who just sits over creation in, in authority. He is one that actually is rejected and dies for his creation. And Jesus 
the way he talks in Matthew, as we will see, um, we don't let people talk like this today. We don't let people talk the way that Jesus talked. I mean, we, we, we would simply never tolerate anyone who talked like Jesus talked. We would never, talk, we would never tolerate a, a person claiming to be that every person who has ever existed in, in eternity past and, 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 and the future, any person who has ever lived and every culture who has ever existed will one day come before me and I will judge their lives. This is what Jesus is saying. No one is exempt. Everyone's going to come before me. And Jesus did this. This is the exact thing that Jesus did. And these are not cute nicknames, right? The Son of God, the Son of David, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. They're not cute nicknames. Thinking about what he called himself, you can see why people planned his murder throughout this book. This is why people hated Jesus and wanted him dead. Because he said, every person who has ever lived is accountable to me. Who do you think you are? And Jesus says, who do you think I am? Who do you think you are? If his claims aren't disturbing enough, it, it, there's something more and it gets worse. He, he, was, he was arrogant. He was arrogant, but he was also humble. We know arrogant people. We know them when we spot them because they talk a lot about themselves. They talk about what they've accomplished. Um, we know who they are by their acts. They act like arrogant people. They boast in themselves. They walk around with puffed up egos. They think that they are exempt. Uh, they exploit others for their own personal gain. We, we know how to spot them, and we know humble people. We know how to spot a humble person. A humble person is, has meek in temperament, and they're others-focused, and they, um, they're welcoming to outsiders. They rarely ever make bold claims about their character or about who they are. They're unassuming, so we know how to spot a humble person. But what we don't know, and this is where Jesus combined the two, we don't know how to deal with someone who is egocentric and humble at the same time. Jesus says, no one comes to the Father unless I draw them. You want to get to heaven? You got to come through me and there's no other way. And then we see him befriending the unlovable, the sick, the lonely, the outcast, befriending sinners and eventually dying a criminal's death to save and forgive his enemies. We don't see anyone like that. And that's what's so disturbing about Jesus is he was so arrogant in the sense that we understand arrogance, just making bold claims about your ability, and yet someone who is so meek and humble and selfless to people that we reject. He says in chapter 11, Come to me, all who are weary, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lonely in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Nowhere do we see any human being who has ever been like this, who has said, every single person who has ever lived is accountable to me as king of the universe. But come to me if you're weary of that idea. Come to me if you're broken over your own sin, and I'll love you, and I'll give you rest. What? It's an odd combination. He talks something here about who he is. It's plain to see. We cannot avoid it. Jesus doesn't deny his identity as the promised Christ and Son of God eternally existing. The Son of Man come to die for our sins as a suffering servant. He doesn't deny any of those things. And, and yet he talks about something else about, well, how do we get this? He talks about our access 
to God. He talks about our access into the life of the kingdom of God and into heaven and into that, that welcomed acceptance of God. How do we get in? You know, the ability to believe this, the ability to believe that, that, that Christ, that Jesus is who he says he is, that he has died for our sins, the ability to really have this sink in doesn't come from our own invention. It doesn't come from ourselves. You know, there's a statistic that actually says that 85% of Americans believe in Jesus as a historical figure. 85% that he actually lived on this earth and that he actually died. And, and many would even believe that he rose from the dead. And yet, merely knowing the facts about Jesus and his life and death and resurrection does not make you a Christian. It's not automatic. It's something that's received. And it's something only God can accomplish in us. I've talked with people about this very thing so many times, and, and they give me different analogies when I, when I ask them, you know, how do you, how do you get access into the love of God? How do you become a Christian? How do you become a saved? Or how, how, how do you get to heaven? How do we have our sins forgiven? We're talking about access here. As Jesus says, he calls the keys to the kingdom, the access to God. How do we get it? I remember one, uh, one explanation that was given, and it was so good. I remember it because it was so helpful to understand how many of us think all the time. He says, this is how I think about my relationship with God. I think about it like my relationship with my dad. Many of you feel that way as well. You view God how you view your father, your earthly father. And he says this, I respected my, my father, my earthly father, and he had rules. My dad had rules. And uh, he had curfew rules, and I had to come home at a certain time. And the rule was, if you're not home by the time the porch light goes on, I lock the door and you sleep outside. And you don't get in. And so I made it my life goal, really. I needed to remember. If I need to be in, if I need to get into the house and sleep in my comfortable bed, I need to be home at the time my dad says, and I need to get in before the light goes on. And so every day I came home, and I was home early just to make sure I was there on time, and I never missed a day where I didn't gain access into my house. And I was there, and I obeyed my father, and I did what he said, and therefore I got to sleep in my bed. And that's how I view God. God's given me things to do, and I need to obey him, and I need to do the best I can to be home before the light goes on so that I can be with him forever. If that's the case, we're all sleeping outside. If that's the case with God, then no one gets in. So it's a good analogy because it's like, that's actually really good and probably biblical. You get in if you get in before the lights go on. But the problem is the lights are on for all of us. None of us meet that. None of us obey God. No one is righteous. No one does what God has told us to do. We all disobey, and you only need to do it once. You only need to miss that curfew one time. And if you sin three times a day, and that's almost, that's round, you know, three times in, in one word, if you, if, you, if you act harshly with somebody with your speech, it's a sin. If you think uh, thoughts in your mind of, of, of lust or anger, that is a, that is a sin. If you, if you uh, it's a sin of omission, if you fail to do what God has asked you to do and you don't do it, that is sin. Let's just say you do three sins a day, which is pretty modest. That's a thousand sins a year. You will, at minimum, commit a thousand sins in 2017. How many have already done three today? We have one. I'll raise my hand. That makes two. And so the lights are on for all of us. Jesus talks about access. Consider another question, uh, the question of are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? I've asked this question of people as well, and I ask them to answer it. 
And the, the responses are good. The responses are varied. Many say, well, I'm trying to be. Or I'd really like to be. Or I wasn't so much last night, but today I'm turning over a new leaf. It's a new year, and I'm going to be a Christian today. Last week was a bad week because it comes to being a Christian, but this week is going to be a better week. You're missing it. You're missing it. Jesus says you're missing it. It's in Peter's response, which, which is loaded with theological significance and meaning of how a person comes to know Jesus to the point of salvation, to the point of access to God and his kingdom. How do you know you truly belong to him? Well, I used to be pretty bad, and now I'm pretty good. You're missing it. Being a Christian is not something that comes naturally. Being a Christian is not something that, it, it, that, that comes to us by our own invention, by our own integrity, by our own character. It's not something that comes to us by our own intellect or reason. It's not something that we can think up. It is something that is bestowed on us, and it must be brought into a person's life from the outside. And that's what Jesus says. He says, in order for you to believe this, Peter, and trust in me, it must mean that God told you, because you can't come up with this on your own. If you have access to the kingdom of God, if you have access to God in salvation, then it's because God gave you access. Notice how Jesus so emphatically references Peter's earthly father. He references Peter's earthly father and his heavenly father in the same passage. When Peter confesses Christ as Savior, Jesus says, Way to go, Simon! Way to go, Simon, son of some guy named Jonah! He says this isn't a flesh and blood thing. You are born into this world through flesh and blood through the volition of an earthly father and mother. You came into this world through flesh and blood, but you come into the kingdom not through flesh and blood, through God and through the Spirit. The same that is required for the incarnate birth of Christ, of Jesus coming into the world, is the same thing that is required for you and I to enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's not a flesh and blood thing. Our perspective, and, and, and there's, there's our perspective and God's perspective, and, and from Peter's perspective, we can recognize this thing, because I want to I be honest and authentic about this. We could recognize from Peter's perspective that he may be surprised to hear that what has entered, caused him to have access to the kingdom is something that he could not do on his own. Because from Peter's perspective, he's been walking with Jesus, he's been learning from Christ, he's been seeing Christ do miracles, he has been hearing Jesus' teaching, he has been sitting at his feet and hearing Jesus talk about himself as the Messiah, as the Son of David, as the Son of Man, as the Son of God, as the Christ. He watched Jesus do what he did and heard what he had to say, and eventually Peter put all the pieces together and said, hey, this is making sense, I figured it out. You're Jesus, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah who has come to save me. But here, Jesus is emphasizing something ultimately, that it always depends on grace, that it always depends on God's work. While there are many means of us hearing and responding to the gospel, through the preaching of the word, uh, only God is capable of opening our heart to truly comprehend our desperate need for him and our dependence on him in faith. Maybe when it comes to knowing Jesus, you didn't learn anything new about his titles, 
You didn't learn anything new about his identity. You've been confessing Christ for as long as you can remember. But maybe this is something where you and I need to, to think about in our accents, in our access to God. Here is what you can know that may be new for you. Your ability to grasp anything of eternal value in Jesus is never based on your impeccable character or your ability to reason your way or to think through it or even your heartfelt intention to want it. None of that matters. But it's always on the kindness of God, the grace of God to reveal himself to us. From God's perspective, he is working in us. From our perspective, it feels like, no, I've just put the pieces together. We love the glory, and this is because we love the glory of ourselves. We love, we love feeling important. We love knowing that, uh, that we are good and that we are capable. And it's what led Adam and Eve ultimately into sin and rebellion is their motivation for their own glory. And it's the motivation for every sin after Adam and Eve and our sin and our sins this morning and, and yesterday and tomorrow. Our motivation in all of those sins is our desire to know it all, to have it all, to be the center of our universe and to be in charge of our life and to do what we want to do. But the gospel won't let us. The gospel won't let us think like that. It won't let us do it. It won't let us take credit for our own salvation. It takes all the credit. It always has. It always will be our Heavenly Father who gives us faith. Don't let, it take, don't let, don't, don't let yourself take credit for the work that God has done in your life. And give him thanks for that. If you believe in Jesus, if you confess Christ and find your hope in him, it's because Jesus loves you so much that he, that he gave you that understanding. Be encouraged by that. Be encouraged that he is in your life, speaking to you, changing you, giving you a new heart and a heart of faith. So why, did, why does this all matter? who he was and how our access to him. This is so important for this series and for our life. Why does it all matter? Well, it's because who you say Jesus is and what he has come to do and how we gain access, it, 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 it determines how we live our life. If you believe that Jesus was a good teacher, you'll follow him like a good teacher. If you believe that he had some good ideas, you'll listen to Jesus when he speaks. You'll weigh them for yourself and you'll kind of take some and, and leave some. If you think he was a good example, you'll spend your whole life trying to be like him and being a good example and living after his example. You see, if we, if we read the scriptures with real close attention, which we're going to do, hopefully we do every week, but we're going to do in Matthew, and not even really, honestly, not even close attention, just moderate attention. If you spend moderate amount of energy reading the words of Christ and what he said, And those words that he says doesn't match up with cultural values and what the culture says, what the world says about what is true and, and who Christ is. Then there's either the claims of Jesus are wrong or our ears are wrong and our ideas and beliefs are wrong. And if Jesus is right, then the culture is wrong. And those, those false claims and imposters of Christ are wrong. But if you believe that Jesus is who he says he was, that he was the promised Messiah, that he came to the earth to save us from our sins, that we would otherwise be condemned um, for, to conquer sin and death, and to reign and rule over all of creation as Lord, then I think that changes everything about how you and I live. If you truly believe Jesus is the Christ, the promised Son of God, 
it will change every area of your life, every facet of your life, every sphere of your influence, every thought, every action, every hope, every dream, every ambition, and every want. It'll change it all if you really believe that Jesus is who he says he was. And here's the exciting thing as Jesus reveals who he is and affirms Peter's understanding of who Jesus is and he praises Peter for it and, 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 and gets excited with him. What is the next thing that Jesus says? Jesus, I'm so excited. I'm going to, let's go to church, Peter. <laughs> I mean, he said, I'm going to build the church. Is it, the church is not an afterthought. You are not an afterthought. The gathering of, of, of people who confess this about Jesus is not an afterthought. It's not a club. It is within the very plan, the eternal plan of God, the brought to God's brought together people that rest on the identity and mission of Jesus and what he is, who he is and what he came to do. Jesus says, I'm getting a new community of people together that are based on me as, as creator and sustainer and governor of all that there is and it's going to be, and this new community is going to get its life from who I am and what I have done. It's forming a new community where, where he himself gives life to it by giving his own life for it. He will sustain this new community by his powerful intervention. Jesus will protect the church from opposing powers, even hell itself. Isn't this great? He says, gates of hell won't, won't be able to overthrow this. That doesn't mean Holy Cross will never cease to exist. What it means is that God's brought together people, the church, the, the big C, his people from, all, from all, all people and all tribes and all nations and all, uh, all time periods and eras. No one can thwart God's plan to save his people, to bring them together. And he welcomes others into it, and he'll bring in this new community into completion of his plans without fail. Jesus is saying, I'm bringing new management. I'm bringing new leadership. I'm bringing people together, and it's going to be a life that draws from my life. You ever drive past um, a, uh, an apartment complex or a condo complex, and there's a big sign out front that says, under new management? I, those, always, those always, like, really make me curious. I, I always think when I drive past, who cares? Like, why does that... Like, the, I'm thinking about it. The only situation that this would matter is if someone just, like, just left that condo and said, that's it. I'm leaving, this place is horrible. And they see the sign, they're like, under new management, I think I'll give it a try again. Maybe I'll go back, you know, that place was a dump before, but now it's really great again. And I always wonder, like, who is this for? Well, I think it's, it's actually good. I, I think that it's good, because everyone does it, so it, it has to be good. Right? If everybody's doing it, it's good. That's good reasoning. Um, here's the marketing behind it, I think. If you enter, if you enter into this kingdom, you know, if you enter into this condo, this apartment complex, the, you don't need to know what the old way was like. You just need to know that the new way is better. You don't need to know what, what it was like before. The new way is better. And, and what is Jesus saying? He's saying, if you enter into my kingdom, the values of this world are being replaced by, by, by the values of God's kingdom. And it's, it's better. The new way is better. These values are shared by true Christ followers. And these values, as we're knit together by Christ, his life, his identity, his mission, his work in our church and in his people. It gives us life. The church is not an afterthought in the mind of God or even the cultural invention of, of man, but the church rests at the heart of God's plan to fulfill his plans for all of creation. What is the church? 
It's visible and invisible, right? It's, it's invisible, which is the church is, consists of all of God's people, all of, all of his elect, all for whom he died on the cross for. And it's, it's, it's all of God's people from, from past and into the future, all of God's children. And the visible church then are those that, that the gathered people, the people that we see. And what Matthew will tell us, actually what Jesus will tell us is he says, not everyone in the visible church is, is in the invisible church. He says, you can do Christian things, you can be a part of a Christian community and never know Jesus. And so it's important to think about the question, who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say that I am? It's a question of eternal significance because Jesus even says in chapter 7, many will come to me when I, when I come and reveal myself and judge. Others will come and very excited and say, Jesus, look at all that we did while we are here in your name. And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. Jesus will say there will be a time where people will assume Christianity and they will be very disappointed finding out that they don't belong to Christ at all. I thought we'd start off the year with just some fear. <laughs> but the true church consists of true Jesus followers who love him deeply, who trust him confidently, who obey him joyfully, who proclaim him boldly, who rest in him completely. This is what Matthew will teach us as he shares with us the words of Christ. Is that your Jesus? Is that your Jesus? Where you serve him joyfully? Where you rest in him completely? Where you proclaim him boldly? Where you obey him faithfully? Is Jesus your savior whom you've given your life for? Is he the king of the universe who warrants your absolute obedience and faithfulness and devotion? Is that your Jesus? We will come to see that this is the only way to follow Christ is to have that view of Jesus. Do you need to know Jesus like this this year more personally? I hope you do, which is good. That's why we're here. That's why we're doing this, to know Jesus, for this is eternal life, to know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. We want to know him. If you do anything this year, if you have any goals, let, those are great. Do, do new things. Turn over new leaves and, 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 and start up new, new goals and desires you have for your life. But if there's anything that you do, give yourself to knowing Jesus. And not just an idea or an invention of Christ. Know him as he is revealed. He seeks and saves the lost. He gives life to the dead. He gives strength to the weary. He gives wisdom to the foolish. I understand this comp- uh, the difficulty here because I've been saying a key component uh, to genuine saving faith is not um, that, it's, that it's gracious, that it's not earned. It's not an invention of our own logic. And so the difficulty for you might be, okay, Pete, like, please help us out here. You're saying it's got to be given to us, but now you're telling us to, to like, do it and get it. Like, what do you want me to do? Do I move? Do I stay? What do I do? Well, here I think it is, is, is the fact that you want Jesus to forgive you and to save you and that you want more of Jesus and that you want that Jesus that we talked about to be your Jesus and you want to know him personally like that and you want to give your life to him and say, God, I've, I've, I've been foolish in my life. I have not seen you as king of my life. The fact that you are feeling that is evidence of the Father's work in your life. 
If you want that, it's evidence that God is calling you, that he is inviting you to rest in him, that he is already revealing himself to you. And you should just, you should, you should give yourself to that. You should listen to it. Talk about it in your diary. So we respond as we're told to respond when we, he reveals himself to us. We repent of our sin. We trust in Jesus. We acknowledge our failure every single day to, to serve him as our, as our faithful king. And we ask for forgiveness on the basis of Jesus' perfect righteousness and what he has done. We receive his mercy, trusting that, that his substitute is sufficient to forgive all of our sins, yesterday, today, and forever. And as we study this account of Jesus, there are three kinds of people, and I, I want you to think about these three kinds. And this is where we will end. There are those who reject Jesus and who he claims to be. There are those that we read about that Jesus says, I am king, I am Messiah, I am the Christ, and they will say, no, you're not. You don't own me. You don't rule me. You're not the way to salvation. You may be a, you may be a help, but you're not the answer. There are those who casually observe Jesus in chapter 14, Jesus feeds the 5,000, right? After this miracle of, of transforming two fish and five loaves of bread, he feeds over 5,000 people. Some scholars even think with women and children who weren't counted, 20,000 people. And he does this twice. He does it in two chapters back to back. He does this. And people casually follow him and they give him token acceptance. And whenever the dinner bell rings, they come. Whenever there's hope for their weary bodies, they come and say, we'll follow you, Jesus. They treat him like a Google. They treat him like a vending machine. They come to God when there's a crisis and when there is need, and they say, we're your disciples. They show up when he teaches. They follow him in spiritual activity. They come to worship service whenever they have a food truck out front. You know who you are. There are those who casually follow him, but that's not what we want. That's not what Jesus calls us to. There are those, lastly, who unconditionally follow Jesus. There are those, as you will see, who will say, Jesus, you're the Christ. You're my Savior and my Lord, and because you are Lord, there are no conditions to my obedience to you. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Have you ever gotten to that place where you can say, whatever you say, there are no conditions on my obedience to you. I will follow you wherever you lead me. I will give you whatever you ask of me. I will abandon all that you've asked me to abandon because you're worthy of nothing less. Let's, let's, let's be that this year. Not as just a, a heartfelt resolution, but as a covenant renewal of our identity as his adopted children into the family of God, as the body of Christ who Jesus died for. Let, let's proclaim that this year and go forward into this year, year with great expectation and joy for what all that it brings, knowing that Jesus is on the throne and he loves us so much. Let's pray.